Turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We're in the middle of this series that we have called, Oh How I Love Your Law. This entire psalm, all 176 verses of it, is about the law of God. The psalmist loves God's law. He celebrates God's law. It is his comfort in difficulty. It is his standard for thinking and acting. And each week, we're looking at a few more verses, learning what they mean, taking to heart the lessons that they teach. And we're also taking time each week then to zoom out to the whole Bible and learn kind of the bigger picture of what God is teaching us about his law. We're seeing a principle about God's law each week, and then we're adding with that a specific law or a case law that serves as an example, that illustrates the principle. Today we're going to begin with verses 97 through 100. 97 through 100. Then we'll take a look at a principle and an example that it illustrates for us. So follow along as I read Psalm 119, starting in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Well, hopefully that sounds familiar, because that's what we just sang together. Our first verse this morning, verse 97, is what we've identified as the theme verse for this whole series, for this psalm. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Throughout the psalm, the psalmist's love for God's word shines through. God's law is his standard, it's his comfort, it's his delight. Why is that? What is it about God's law that causes him to say, oh, how I love your law? We should love God's word for several reasons. First, because God is the author. God gave us his law. It is his word. If we're unfamiliar with God's law, if we don't speak of it and seek to live by it, that shows that we don't really love God. We have contempt for him if we ignore his word. You can't ignore God's law and pretend that you love God. Instead, if you really love something, it's on your mind. You think about it. You talk about it. So measuring by that standard... Do you love God's law? We should love God's law not just for who wrote it, but because of what it is, the content of it. The word of God is true and good and beautiful. There's things you can learn in the word of God that you can't learn anywhere else. How to be reconciled to God. How salvation can be found. Thomas Manton, Puritan commentator, points out that Since God's law comes from him, just like all his other works, it points to him. Just like creation points to the creator, God's law points to the lawgiver. Here's how he says it. I appreciate how he says things at times here. He says, as the sun is seen by its own beams, so the word of God needs no other testimony than itself to commend it to the consciences of men. Certainly, it is such a truth as does sufficiently evidence itself to be of God. All God's works discover their author, 
and carry about with them their own demonstration, not only his greater works, upon which he has impressed most of his wisdom and power, but even his lesser works. Every worm and pile of grass shows who made it. To an attentive and discerning eye, a man cannot look upon a worm or consider a gnat or any contemptible creature, but he shall see that this was made by a wise God. God has left his stamp upon every one of his works, and certainly upon his word much more. For he has magnified his word above all his name. We should also love God's law because of how God uses it in our lives to accomplish his purposes. God uses his law to convert our soul. He uses his law to clean our hearts, to bring us into submission to him. Just listen to these verses from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward." You can hear in those verses all the things that God accomplishes using his word. And we could take time to look at quite a few other places in scripture that would show us that God uses his word to bring us to maturity, to build us up in our faith, to direct our decisions and our choices, to bring us comfort. Is it any wonder that the psalmist says that he loves God's law? What does it look like in your life when you love God's law? If you truly love God's word, for starters, you'll read it regularly. You'll listen to it. You'll pray in response to it. You'll consult it. You'll meditate on it. If you truly love God's word, you will love the whole word, not just the parts you like. You'll look to the word for correction as much as for comfort, for confrontation, as much as for promises. If you truly love God's word, you'll prioritize the primary place in which God says his word is communicated with the power of the spirit. What is that place? It's the gathering of the church for worship. It's the preaching of the word. Why is it that we neglect God's word? we take the psalmist at his word, it's probably because we don't really love it. Ask God to give you a love for his word so that it becomes a priority, an ever-present counselor and standard in your life. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. In verse 98, the psalmist says, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies for it is ever with me. Here the psalmist says that God's commands are the means that God uses to make him wise. So the benefit that he gets here in this verse is wisdom. 
And it's God who's giving the wisdom, but the means of God communicating that wisdom to him is his commandments. And the manner of it is that the commandment is always with him. So what's the effect of it? He becomes wiser than his enemies. This means the psalmist has spent time meditating on God's commands and that he's committed to obey them. There's a knowledge of God's commands and there is the wisdom that puts them into practice. This is not just head knowledge, it's knowledge put into action. Why is the wisdom that comes from God superior to what his enemies have? Well, for one thing, the psalmist has wisdom that applies to every situation. Right? If you're going on a long trip, you have to plan for all kinds of weather. You've got to be prepared for whatever it is that's going to come up. In the journey of life, you have to be prepared for a wide variety of circumstances. And God's commands will prepare you for any circumstance. Another reason that God's wisdom is superior for the psalmist is that it's a wisdom that includes not just the past and the present, but also the future. He can look to the eternal not just this life. He can understand that in the end, God wins. So in the contest that's going on in the present between the psalmist and his enemies, the psalmist doesn't just act according to what is safe, but rather what is wise. You get tired of hearing safety first. I do. Just listen this week. See how many times you hear that. Why? Why safety first? Why not righteousness first? Right? What did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When in Luke chapter 13, some Pharisees came to warn Jesus about danger that he was facing, they said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Jesus said to them, you go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. The wisdom that Jesus embodied was not a wisdom of safety first, but righteousness first, duty, obedience to God's commands. And the psalmist's wisdom is able to consider what is right, not simply what is safe. And that kind of obedience, that kind of wisdom is superior to the the, the wisdom that the psalmist's enemies claim to have. In verse 99, the psalmist writes, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Now, in the last verse, the psalmist compared himself to enemies. Now, in this verse, he compares himself to teachers. He says that he has more understanding than all his teachers. He's not saying that uh, like your average teenage boy might say it. Okay? This is not an arrogant statement. He's saying this because he meditates on God's testimonies. Thomas Manton observes that While the psalmist's teachers may know the secrets of nature, the psalmist knows the God of nature. While the teachers and the philosophers may dispute about what is the chief good, the psalmist is enjoying the chief good, God himself. While the teachers may know the use of natural things, the psalmist knows the use of spiritual things. We have plenty of examples of men in scripture who excelled their teachers, 
Daniel and his friends, for example, Daniel 1 tells us that in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Jesus, at age 12, we were just reading this as a family this week, he was in the temple listening to the teachers and asking questions, and Luke writes that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. We could see the same thing of Samuel excelling Eli and Paul growing beyond his teacher Gamaliel. When the psalmist says that he has more understanding than his teachers, he's not being arrogant. His purpose isn't to exalt himself, but rather to exalt God. It's God's testimonies that he has meditated on, and God, through those words, has given him this wisdom. I think there are lessons here for us. It's, it's very easy for us to be intimidated by those that the world sees as educated or intellectual. If you say that you believe God created the world out of nothing, you're likely to be laughed at. If you say that a lot of the things that are, are described today as psychological you know, diagnoses of doctors and counselors, if you say that those things are really spiritual issues and that the drugs are really just suppressing the symptoms of a spiritual problem, you'll be dismissed. If you say that God's laws give us wisdom that we actually should be applying in our nation and in our communities, you're likely to be scorned. But that shouldn't stop us. The psalmist has confidence, you can hear it, confidence in God's wisdom. He recognizes that the wisdom he has from God is superior to his teachers. This should also affect where you and I personally turn for answers. Are we seeking the wisdom of the world? Are we relying on the supposed wisdom of people who have no spiritual compass or standard? When God tells us that his word speaks to all of life, it's not arrogance for us to believe him and to turn to God's word instead of to the experts that the world has to offer. Verse 100 is our last verse this morning. Here the psalmist says, I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Now the psalmist compares himself to the aged. He says that he understands more than they because he keeps God's precepts. Again, this is not arrogance on the part of the psalmist. He recognizes that sometimes young people who are committed to God's word have more understanding than those who have many, many years of life experience. So, understanding that comes from God's precepts is better than understanding that comes from experience. Now, that doesn't mean that experience isn't valuable. It doesn't mean we should discount what our elders have to say. Quite the opposite. We actually probably need to pay more attention to them. But the gold standard of understanding is God's word and nothing else. Why is the understanding that comes from God's laws better? This kind of understanding is more exact and sure. God sees everything. 
including the past, the present, the future. There's nothing that escapes his knowledge. Now, the aged may have much experience, but what they have is very limited compared to God. And this kind of knowledge is connected, again, to obedience. The psalmist says he keeps God's precepts. That's how this knowledge increases. Paul says in Colossians that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Obedience and growth in knowledge and understanding are connected. So in these last three verses, the psalmist has compared himself to three different groups of people, enemies, teachers, and the aged. And because he has God's law, he's in a better position than any of them. Here's how Thomas Manton comments on this. He says, three sorts of men are mentioned. Enemies, teachers, ancients. The enemies excel in policy, teachers in doctrine, and ancients in counsel. And yet, by the word, was David made wiser than all these. Malice sharpens the wit of enemies and teaches them the arts of opposition. Teachers are furnished with learning, but ancients, they grow wise by experience. Yet David, by the study of the word, excelled all these. And again, that's why the psalmist can say in verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. Now, each week we've begun by looking at verses from Psalm 119, like the four verses that we've looked at this morning. And in all of these verses, there's a lot for us to learn and also to be applying specifically in our lives. But we're also taking time as we go to zoom out each week to see this larger principle from God's law, from the rest of scripture. And along with that, looking at least at one specific example, a case law that illustrates the principle. The principle that I want us to see this morning is that God's laws establish just boundaries. God's laws establish just or righteous boundaries. Boundaries are important. If we're talking about behavior, boundaries let us know what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. If we're talking about a game, boundaries tell us where the game must be played. In terms of private property, boundaries speak to ownership and your control over the use of your property. You've heard the saying, good fences make good neighbors. Well, God's laws establish just boundaries. The specific boundaries that we're going to look at this morning are physical boundary markers of private property, what the Bible calls landmarks. Deuteronomy 19 verse 14 says, You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And then a few chapters later, we read that God's judgment will be on anyone who violates this. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. And the context here is that Israel is about to enter the promised land. Now, when they go into the land, 
God will divide up the land for all of the different tribes. And then inside of that, each tribe will divide up their land according to clans and according to families. And those divisions were permanent. If you sold the land, you were really selling a lease because every 50 years, the land was to revert back to its original ownership. That was called the year of Jubilee. All the debts were canceled. It was like a great big reset button was pressed. So when you sold land, if there's 40 years left till the year of Jubilee, the price on the land would be higher. If there's only like four years left till the next year of Jubilee, the price is going to be a lot lower because the land eventually is going to revert back to its original ownership. Now, one big lesson that that process illustrates is that while God established and honored the ownership of private property, it is really a stewardship. God is really the owner. When you're the owner, you can exclude people from the property. Right? You put up a no trespassing sign. For example, God set a rule in the Garden of Eden that excluded Adam and Eve from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they violated that, when they trespassed his restriction, he excluded them from the entire garden. That was his right, because he owned it. A practical reason for the land divisions being permanent in Israel was that God had promised certain things that were going to happen through particular tribes. So the tribes had to remain distinct and separate until those promises were fulfilled. And the land laws helped to maintain those distinctions. Now, at the same time, these laws about land in Israel tell us something else. The idea of the land reverting to its original owner, that was specific to Israel. That lasted only up until 70 AD, when the Old Covenant era finally passed away. So, we can read between the lines and see a particular implication here, and that is that land sales anywhere else are perfectly legal. They're not restricted like they were in Israel. God only restricted them in Israel for his purposes with the nation. So land sales beyond that specific situation are legitimate. And that reinforces the idea of private property, which we see God reinforcing elsewhere in his word as well. Now, let me make two observations about physical landmarks before we move on to see what else God is teaching us by this illustration. Here's the first one. Landmarks and boundary lines lead to cooperation. Okay, landmarks and boundary lines lead to cooperation. This is where the saying, good fences make good neighbors, comes in. If you don't know where the boundary line is, then you will either end up trying to take land that isn't yours or being upset that someone is taking land and using it that belongs to you. You'll feel that your neighbor's violating your space. In more extreme situations, there will be fighting over the land and its resources because it's not clear who owns it. I'm reading a book with a couple of our kids right now called Little Britches by Ralph Moody. It's a great book. Highly recommend it. It's a story of growing up in hard times as a small ranching family in Colorado in the first decade of the 1900s. And because water was scarce, the creek that flowed through the ranches in that area was a lifeline. But when drought came, 
those farther up the creek would divert the creek to their own property, to their own ranches, and it would leave nothing for those that were farther down. And so there was fighting and there was discord until the solution was reached of how to measure how much water each ranch was allowed to use. Those are the kinds of boundaries that make for good neighbors. Those boundaries lead to cooperation. When there are no boundaries, people will take what their neighbors have when they want it or need it themselves. Landmarks and boundaries, however, set the lines that should not be crossed. And when there's a need, then neighbors can come together in cooperation rather than theft. Boundaries give private property owners the right to exclude people, and that ultimately leads to better neighbors and better cooperation. Now, the second lesson here is, and I'll be brief, but there are lessons here for the state. God gave the state no authority over private property. Now, the state may need to handle disputes about private property or disputes about things that happened on private property, but the ownership of the land is private. In God's economy, there should be no property taxes, no confiscation of property by the state, no inheritance taxes. All of those, according to God's standards, constitute theft by the state. Now, they violate God's law. As a Christian, you may have no choice but to pay those taxes and to deal with the immorality of the system in which you live. But we should still take note that these are ungodly principles and laws. And if we ever have the opportunity to do away with them, we should. Now, what we see in these verses about physical landmarks and boundaries serves as an analogy for a spiritual truth as well. The verses that we've looked at about landmarks, over time, even in scripture, you see those verses becoming proverbial, meaning uh, people use them as a saying to illustrate something. So in the book of Proverbs, you would find this in chapter 22, chapter 23. We're told that God will act to defend those who are being taken advantage of. But the principle is becoming a proverb, and it teaches a lesson beyond just the physical landmarks and the laws that have to do with them. When we come to the writings of the prophet Hosea, we find teachings about landmarks again. Now, you don't have to turn there this morning, though you're welcome to. I'll have the verses on the screen. But Hosea is a prophet who serves during the darkest time in Israel's history. It's the years leading up to the Assyrian exile. So remember, the way that the the nation is divided, you have Israel in the north, Judah in the south. We're talking about Israel. Their darkest time is just before they're they're carried off into the Assyrian exile. That's 722 B.C. And the the way that the Assyrians do that is they take some of the people from the land and spread them all over their empire. And they bring other people from uh, other places in the empire and they mix them in in the land so that there's a kind of a diluting of the ethnic identities so that people find it much more difficult to, to band together and revolt against the empire. Well, this is the years leading up to that Assyrian invasion. That's when Hosea is ministering. Israel has been disobedient and unfaithful to God over and over. And 
God is telling Hosea now to go marry a prostitute who will be unfaithful to him. And Hosea's faithfulness to her, his forgiveness of her, becomes an object lesson for the nation, teaching them about God's love and forgiveness of them in their unfaithfulness. For example, in Hosea 3.1, we read, The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. And then a few verses later, we have the prophecy of what's going to happen. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So, they will have no king. When when is that? Well, when they're captured and exiled, they, they no longer have a king. They'll have no sacrifices, no ephod, in other words, no priestly ministry, because They're not able to go to the temple in Jerusalem because the Assyrians have captured them. So that's what that's talking about. And this is prophesying, the the, the exile that's about to happen, Assyria is going to defeat them, carry them off out of the land of Israel, but eventually they will return. They'll seek the Lord and they'll have David as their king. And this will be the latter days or the last days. Now what is that talking about? Because... Historically, Israel never really came back into the land. Judah did from Babylon. But Israel just kind of got mixed in with all the nations. That's why, for example, in the days of Jesus, when you see Jesus and his disciples going through Samaria and the Samaritans are looked down on by the Jews, why is that? Because the Samaritans are half-breeds. They're intermixed with people from other nations. That was done by the Assyrians. Okay? So, you have this kind of historical question where it doesn't look like that that is ever going to happen, them returning to the land. And you have this confusing statement about David. David lived before Hosea. So how is David going to be their king? What does that mean? Well, all of this is a picture of what's going to happen when Jesus comes bringing his kingdom. Who is it that's going to seek the Lord, like these verses say? Well, it's those who believe in Jesus. Who is David the king? It's Jesus, the greater son of David, David's descendant. The last days begin in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus says that the kingdom has arrived. After his resurrection, Jesus is enthroned. He sends his disciples out to announce the good news of the kingdom. And they go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And the point that I'm trying to get across by explaining all of this this morning is to set us up to understand what Hosea says about landmarks. And it's simply this. The unfaithfulness of Israel that is spoken of by Hosea is ultimately a spiritual unfaithfulness. The physical is serving as an analogy for the spiritual reality. Now with that in mind, 
Hosea says in chapter 5, he talks about the unfaithfulness of the leaders of both Israel and Judah. And here's what he says in verse 10. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Their spiritual unfaithfulness is compared to moving a landmark. Now that tells us that the laws in Deuteronomy about not moving landmarks were intended by God to teach something more than just simply laws about private property. There's a spiritual analogy in the law as well. Now don't get me wrong, the physical laws are important, private property is important, God's laws governing these things are important too. That should direct how we handle private property today. But the law teaches more than that. There's a broader principle here about not moving away from the boundaries that God has set. God has given Israel and Judah his laws, his principles, his boundaries, but the leaders of Judah have moved the landmarks. They've moved the spiritual landmarks. Here's how R.J. Rushdoony comments on this particular verse, Hosea 5.10. He says, as case law, it is applied generally to mean any and every breach of God's law. When men and nations, rulers and peoples alter God's law, or by reinterpretation, weaken or alter its meaning, they have then falsified God's boundaries. They've made his righteous law into an instrument of injustice. Now, how do we see that happening in our day? Well, certainly we see it in our culture. The boundaries between right and wrong are being obliterated. I don't know if it strikes you the same way that it does me as we go through this series in God's law. I'm struck by just how far our nation has wandered away from the way that God designed things to be. Right and wrong have become completely subjective. We live autonomously, according to self-law, rather than submitting to the authority of God's law. A very obvious example in our culture today is the issue of gender. We're in the middle of June, which our pagan nation has decided is Pride Month, where we will celebrate all the ways that we can deviate from God's laws for gender. We are literally living out Romans 1. Let me just read you a few verses from that passage. God gave them, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. As we go on down through that passage to the last verse in the chapter, here's what we read. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Okay, do not miss this. Do you see how we have moved the landmarks, the boundaries that God has set for gender? We as a culture give approval to those who practice these things. That's literally what Pride Month is. It is a national approval of these sins. 
we as a nation formally approve with this celebration recognized by our president and our government of these sins. We've moved the landmarks of gender identity which God established. Now, I read a quote earlier from Rush Dooney on this verse in Hosea about unfaithfulness being like removing the landmarks. Here's what he goes on to say. See if this doesn't apply also to our culture. God's landmarks are being triumphantly set aside as a sign of great enlightenment. By removing God's landmarks, men plan to initiate a golden age of freedom. But as it approaches, the golden age looks more and more like the fires of hell. Sometimes the landmarks that are threatened are within the church. One of the current battlegrounds amongst fairly conservative churches is the issue of gender roles within the church. Are men and women the same? Or has God created them with differences? Are their roles in church and in society and in the home all the same? Or are there differences? And of course, the primary place that battle is fought is over the issue of women pastors. The Southern Baptist Convention met this past week. And this was one of the prominent issues on the table. A well-known church, Saddleback Church, formerly pastored by Rick Warren, has hired female pastors, and Warren came out in favor of that move. And so the church was removed from the Southern Baptist Convention as a result. However, there are many within the convention that are still fighting for women to be able to serve as pastors. Many other denominations have already gone down that road. Is it any wonder that there is gender confusion in our culture when we in the church refuse to uphold God's standards of differences between men and women in the church. So what's to be done? How do we maintain the ancient landmarks? What does that look like? Let me give you this morning four practical suggestions to consider. Okay? Four things. Number one, we should preserve the orthodox creeds and confessions and catechisms. Creeds are statements of belief, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, which have stood the test of time. They convey solid biblical truth. So, read them, learn them, pass them on. Confessions are larger, fuller statements of belief, doctrinal statements, like the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. Again, read them, learn them, pass them on. Catechisms, you know because we've done them, are the question and answer format, teaching tools to help us learn biblical truth. Examples would be Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Orthodox Baptist Catechism. Read them, learn them, use them, pass them on. In our circles, we often react against things like that because they seem formal. Well, we'll just end up saying these things by rote and we won't really mean them. And while that is a real danger, it doesn't have to be the case. Getting these truths stuck in our heads helps as time goes on. And saying them together as the church reinforces our common commitment to the truth. Uh, growing up, I often heard the statement, no creed but the Bible. Right? We didn't have a, a statement of faith, you know, some historic statement that we submitted to. No creed but the Bible. Well, that sounds good on the surface. 
Because what you mean by that is our loyalty is to God's word, right? Not to some creed made by men. But the statement, no creed but the Bible, is itself a creed. It's inevitable that we're going to make some statement of truth, of what we believe. So it should be a good one. So learn and celebrate the best ones that the church has produced through, through the years. A second suggestion. Wholeheartedly participate in the corporate worship of the church. Now we've just talked about creeds and catechisms and confessions, all of which play some part in our corporate worship as a church, but there's more than that in our worship as well. When we read scripture together, we're doing that because we're saying as a people that this is our authority and that we believe it. So if someone's reading it for us, pay attention and tune in. If we're reading it together out loud, participate When we sing, we are proclaiming God's truth literally by the means that he has ordained. God has commanded his people when they gather to sing. So if you regularly don't participate, you're in disobedience to the command of God. We sing psalms because we're singing God's truth, the worship songs he's given to the church. We sing hymns and other songs. We're celebrating truth in a form that will impress itself on our minds and our hearts by God's design and command. And to do that, you have to attend worship, to participate. So be here. Be here early and be ready. Help your kids to engage and pay attention to sing. Let's act as if we really believe God's word, like we actually prioritize it in our life, individually, as a family, as a church. A third suggestion, pass the landmarks on to future generations. What are you doing to train the next generation or the one after that? How are you communicating this truth to your kids, to your grandkids, If we want the landmarks to hold their position, we have to teach the kids where the landmarks are. A fourth and final suggestion this morning. Uphold the inerrancy and sufficiency of God's word, every part of it. Is God's word the final authority in every area of your life? Is every part of God's word upheld and honored in your life? See, all the other tools we've mentioned this morning are important, but underneath them all is the foundation of God's word, God's law. We come to God's law in a posture of submission. What he says, we will believe and obey. It's not one option among many that we will consider. It's not good advice that we'll contemplate. It's not a set of standards that apply just in the religious realm. No, God's law is the command of the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. His word is inerrant. It is always completely right and true. And it's sufficient. It speaks authoritatively every area of life. Proverbs 22, 28. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. It's important that we don't move the actual physical 
landmarks, that we respect private property, but it's also important that we don't move the spiritual landmarks either. We are not people who will be driven by the current winds of culture. We will stand firm and refuse to move the ancient landmarks. We will stand on the foundation of God's truth now and always. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know where the landmarks are and to be committed to not moving them. Help us to be people who are faithful because you have been faithful to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.